Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, Zooming with Peter Kadzis. Peter, how goes it? It goes well, Adam. I never know when I ask you how things are, if I should acknowledge for readers that we've spent the entire day working together, or if I should do this theater of the mind thing, like we're just catching up after a few days. So now I've pulled back the curtain, and we can never yeah, go back. you have. Well... The thing is, when we work together, it's not that it's mindless, but it's so different than this. You know, we've got, usually we're working together, we're fighting against the clock. This has to be on this time, or it's got to be done by tomorrow morning. And it's not that we don't have that same pressure. Um, We we actually enjoy doing this. Well put. Well, you know, and I'll I'll share this with the listeners. I, you know, look, I it's pretty safe to say we both love our jobs, but the the podcast we're a little like those guys who work in the kitchen who also play in a band, and and <laughs> this is sort of band time right now. I love it. In this episode you are going to hear a ridiculously informative conversation about the Democratic primary race between Congressman Richard Neal, the chair of what I'm contractually obligated to call the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, and his challenger, Holyoke Mayor Alex Morse. That convo features Carrie Saldo, until very recently the host of the show Connecting Point at our Springfield sister station, New England Public Media, and also Mad Safransky, the founder and editor-in-chief of Western Mass Politics and Insight. But first, Peter, the Massachusetts House just voted to extend the current legislative session beyond July 31st, which hasn't happened any time that I can recall, and I've been here for a quarter century. Apparently, the Senate is likely to follow suit, And this group of people that don't like to work in the summer are going to keep on working in the summer. What's going on here? Well, it's the pandemic. As you know, I love to take cheap shots at the legislature, and no doubt a few will follow. But working remotely has really, really slowed down what is constitutionally sort of a dysfunctional process anyway, or a conflict-ridden process. Um, that You know, that's, that's the nature of democracy, is the resolution of conflicts in different points of view. Um, so the pandemic has added a new layer on, um, and uh, my heart goes out to the elected officials because it's tough. Now, that's going to be the nicest thing I'll say about them during this whole session. I find myself wondering as you say that, and I'm guessing some listeners will too. Well, yes, there is the pandemic and it's changed a lot for a lot of us, even those of us lucky enough, knock on wood, to to have escaped COVID so far. That being said, the legislature has a pretty well-established habit of waiting until the last minute to do almost everything, unless their hand is forced by external circumstances, would it be too harsh to say, well, what's going on here is the pandemic plus a bad institutional habit that they stuck to at a bad time? Well, the the only group of people worse than journalists in meeting deadlines are the members of the Massachusetts General Court. Um, but that said, there's, there's something bigger going on. In, in Washington, um, the conflict is between the Democrats and the Republicans. 
Um, in Massachusetts, the conflict is between the House of Representatives and the State Senate. It's like, you know, the, the, the House is from Venus and the Senate is from Mars. You know, they live on different planets. Um, you know, that I, I think somewhat explains the fact that as we record, the, the Senate has not yet agreed to extend. Um, you know, responsible people have told Mike Dean, our State House correspondent, and have told me that, you know, oh, it'll happen, or is, um, you know, as an official spokesman said off the record, it will likely happen. You know, everyone's very mm, protective of their own institution and their own prerogatives. But I, I also think it's instructive that DeLeo called for it. It happened immediately in the House. And the Senate is, in my view, given the circumstances, dithering. Even if the nature of the dithering is understandable and can be explained, the Senate is still dithering. Um, um, I have to say, I, I just don't understand what goes on in their collective minds. You know, all crowds, you know, crowds are made up of individuals, and each individual, as everyone knows, has their own quirks. But there's a certain point at which crowds begin to act like a single person. And I just don't understand the person that is the Senate. You know, with a time like this, I think it shows that they're out of touch with reality to just not immediately agree with the House to extend it. Because then, know-it-alls like us wouldn't be able to talk about it. But they're elected, I'm not. So do you think that if we speculate about the hive mind of the Senate, is the rationale for not doing it right away something like, well, okay, the House did that. They're their own separate body, and we will go ahead and take up the matter when we are good and ready. Yes. It's like getting a three-year-old to put their shoes on. Um, and I, I know, I remember when my kids, one of my twin boys at that age, you could say, hey, hurry up, put your shoes on. The other one, you couldn't because he would put his shoes on, but not until he was good and ready. There are some practical aspects of this. Um, I, 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 I think all the wisecracks aside, one of the big issues that has not been dealt with properly over the last two years, two years or so, is health care. And that's because there's a very different approach taken by the House and taken from by the Senate, and they're each, you, you know, um, how should I put this? You know, they, they're, in, they're entitled to their own institutional views. But when it comes down to practical terms, you know, the House early, I'm sorry, the Senate earlier this year ad adopted a couple of major, somewhat sweeping health reform bills, and the House refused to take them up. Now, you could say shame on the House for not taking them up. Um, but at this point, I might say, I might, I would raise the question. I wouldn't say, I'd say, why is the Senate 
pushing for these sort for a sort of massive structural change that they know the other body doesn't have the stomach for. Um, of course, one of the reasons is is that the person in the House and the person in the Senate who are in charge of the health care aren't speaking to each other. So that that complicates things. Or they're really, really on the outs. You know, there'll be a, a serious attempt to resolve this and the, the fact that it appears that the legislative session will be extended is a good thing. Um, the key for anyone listening to this, whenever they listen to it, is that um, it, it's not that it's going to be uh, uh, an, it, it's not that it's going to be you know a freewheeling harem scarum. We're going to consider anything in July and August. There's um, there's a method to the madness, and the method is or will likely be that. The House and the Senate will grapple with bills that are in the conference committee. And for, you know, people who aren't junkies, the conference committee is where the compromises are struck, um, where the differences between the two bodies, the two very legitimate differences in the way they view policy issues, are hammered out. I'll give everyone another example. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the economic development bill, which is really a catch-all for a whole range of issues. But the House, when it okayed sports, sports betting, did not adopt the lottery going online. M myself, I think that was a mistake. Um, I am not a fan of the lottery. I'm not a fan of gambling. However, the lottery is a fact of life. You have to deal with it. If we're allowing sports betting, I, I think we have to allow the lottery to be competitive with it because cities and towns get a boatload of money from the lottery. Now, it'll be interesting to see whether the Senate loads up the economic development bill with stuff the House took out. Before we wrap up our state house convo, any other big pieces of legislation people should be keeping an eye on if they go into extra time? There's the police reform. Well, that was going to be my answer, and it'll be interesting here. I think it's very telling that uh, the Senate president, in her response to the House extending their session, you, you know, in these are my words, not hers, said, that's all well and good, but there's no reason why we can't settle on police reform by the end of the night Friday. Um, I would tend to agree with her on that. And if the House carries it over, or if they can't, I'd sort of say shame on them. They've all had enough time. Um, the only reason I'm saying shame on them is it's a really important issue. Um, you know, Adam, uh, our listeners might not, that from um, our private discussions that I think the public is ultimately going to be disappointed in the level of police reform that is achieved. And even though we're talking about the State House, I think that'll be true of the city of Boston as well. I'm not doubting anyone's good intentions, and elected officials will say, you know, politics is the out of the practical of the doable. But... Um, I, I fear, and I hope I'm wrong, but I, there's reason to believe that the uh, incredible influence of the police union um, 
may be just too strong in the House. So I would keep an eye on the police reform legislation. All right. On that note, on to my conversation with Carrie Saldo and Matt Zafransky about the big Democratic congressional contest in western Massachusetts between longtime incumbent Richard Neal and Holyoke Mayor Alex Morris. They started out by giving me and every other Eastern Mass ignoramus a tour of the first district. The first congressional district in western Massachusetts is gigantic. Uh, It's almost 90 cities and town, 87, I think, if you're counting exactly. And it's incredibly rural. And uh, often one of the criticisms that Representative Neal gets is he's not getting to all of those nooks and crannies. It used to be two districts. Uh, 2012, we lost that seat. And that's been, I think, something that Congressman Neal, when he shifted from what had been the second congressional district he ran and won the first congressional district, he's been kind of working to figure out how to cover all of that ground. Yeah, and one major thing that uh, was different between the two districts is that um, where a lot of the, I would say, the complaints about Neil's representation are areas that were in John Olver's district, and that district had no center of gravity. The largest city, I think, was probably like, you know, Fitchburg or Pittsfield, and that's almost the same size as Holyoke, Westfield, you know, there's no big city, whereas in this district, Springfield dominates the, the, the district, really, and if you include the suburbs, then, you know, it's an overwhelming amount of the population uh, in the district. And just to give you a sense, historically, uh, in the primaries that we've had since the district was created, Springfield was still one fifth of the primary vote. And that's despite relatively low turnout in the city uh, for a primary. What are the politics of the district like? Is it across the board pretty reliably blue or are there pockets that are redder? that people should know about? I would say that, yes, there are pockets that, that are conservative. Um, you know, you get out to like the the towns around Westfield. Westfield itself is kind of a swingy city, for example, but the towns around there are very, very red or they've become very, very red. Um, what I would say is that it's almost like not red blue is almost not the best example because you have a lot of towns that are very democratic, but they're not like you know, they're neither like I would say they're like committed to being conservative or progressive. They'll, they'll vote for a Democrat, but they're not like, you know, super liberal or super conservative. They have, they have a lot of tolerance in either direction. Yeah. In terms of who's representing us at the state level, I think, Matt, you and I have joked before that it's a very small caravan of folks. They're fitting into like a Honda Civic to go back and forth to the state house, uh, And they lost a seat when John Vilas won the Senate seat. And that had been a Republican stronghold for what 25 years until recently you've got Agawam you've got Southwick that tend to trend more red even where I live right now Palmer tends to be a little more red and interestingly I was talking to one political observer recently who said these areas whether Southwick Agawam you've seen more Morse lawn signs now not that lawn signs vote but it's just one of those things where you can put the finger on the pulse of that and check it you've been seeing more signs pop up in these areas where perhaps you would expect to see now there's not a republican candidate in this race but you would expect to see not so much support for a young progressive democrat do you have a theory about what it is about 
Morris's candidacy that might be leading to those uh, indications of support in unexpected areas? I mean, you mentioned at the outset that one of the critiques of Neil is he's not getting around enough. Um, if you had to hazard a, a theory about why Morris is being supported in unexpected areas, would it be that or would it be something else? I don't need to hazard that because that came up with the political observer who I was talking to. And they think that it could be evidence that while these people might have supported Neil in the past, a non-Neil vote, a pro-Morse vote, is sort of an, an indictment of Neil in and of itself. Not necessarily, we will never support a Republican again. So when you say it's, it's an indictment of Neil in and of itself, do you mean for being you know, insufficiently present in the district? Or are there other things that he's done or failed to do in his time in office uh, and his most recent term in office that would be leading them to say, we're done with this guy? That's a tough one. I, I, I'm a little reluctant to, to say either way. Matt, do you have a theory on that one? Um, if I had to make a guess, if these are people that are more, normally more conservative voters that are unenrolled and getting into the, the primary, it might just be a potentially a, a pro-Trump thing, you know, like going after a Democratic Congress that's been uh, in Trump's hair. I will say that there are also a lot of, you know, fair, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what, I necessarily know what to expect them to do, but there has been a phenomenon of, you know, conservatives and former Republicans unenrolling and voting in Democratic primaries because usually it's the only thing to vote for. We, it's actually rare. We have two state legislative primaries for Republicans this year. It's, uh, it's bizarre. I'm almost beside myself. Um, uh, but uh, for example, in 2016, when we had a sheriff's race, the sheriff Mike Ash, outgoing sheriff, he knew a lot of Republicans and he asked them to help support uh, his candidate for that race. And I know for, for a fact that at least some unenrolled and voted in that race because they respected uh, Mike Ash's opinion and uh, wanted to support his candidate. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's also the other direction going on where there could be some Republican or conservative voters that might vote for Neil in, in similar circumstances for a variety of reasons. Can you talk me through who is with Morris and who is with Neil in this race when it comes to, you know, labor, for example, uh, progressive advocacy groups, non-progressive advocacy groups. Uh, how is support for these two candidates shaking out among key institutional players? I would say that there's been very few groups in the district itself in Western Mass that have really stepped out and uh, supported him, at least publicly. Um, there's been uh, some level of uh, uh, surprise and controversy that what progressive groups there are like in Springfield have pretty much kept their powder dry. Um, they, I would say very unlikely they would have endorsed Neil for a variety of reasons, but the fact that they haven't gone for Morris is also, uh, some would say, telling. Um, there's been a lot of national progressive groups that have come out for Morse, you know, our revolution, both the state and local affiliate, indivisible, justice Democrats. And as far as like, you know, officials go, it's been a smattering of city councilors in places like Pittsfield, East Hampton, obviously Holyoke, um, and, you know, the city council president of Springfield. But I believe he also endorsed Neil's opponent two years ago, too. So I don't know how much that is ideological. In terms of larger endorsements, a big hit for Neil, I think, recently was the fact that the Mass Nurses Association chose not to endorse him. I'm pretty sure that's the first time that that's happened in his career. So big one there. But recently also, uh, check for Neil is the Bold Pack, which 
uh, is a, affiliated with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and they call they they called Neil uh, uncompromising ally of the Latino community. Also, right before Congressman Lewis passed away, a few weeks before he endorsed Neil, so two biggies there for him. The dynamic in the Kennedy Markey primary fight. Um, I shouldn't say the dynamic. The argument that Kennedy has been making has seemed to me to be twofold. Uh, on the one hand, he says Senator Markey isn't around enough, which sounds very similar to what, um, well, actually, just so I'm clear on this, is Morse making that criticism or is it something that you hear from neocritics, but not necessarily explicitly articulated by Morse? I haven't heard him dig into that as much as the money that Neil is landing is big money, big industry. I'm here to represent you, the little person. I'm taking money from individuals, individuals, individuals who vote. And that's, I think, the been the chief criticism I've heard lobbed from the Morse camp. Not so much the where have you been, where haven't you been uh, piece of it, which that I think is somewhat just a criticism we hear often in the Western part of the state, whether it's Governor Baker doesn't get to Western Mass uh, often enough, COVID testing sites, uh, the pop-up sites that he announced recently, all Eastern part of the state focused. So there's this real sense among Western Massachusetts voters that they are, we are the overlooked group. I would agree totally. I think there's some indirect, like an implicit criticism that you hear a little bit from Morse uh, on that. But Carrie's right. You, if you are hearing that criticism, it is more from like individual people in the, the more lightly populated parts uh, of the district. Um, and and I think, you know, not to jump too far ahead of what you were saying, you know, about Kennedy and Markey, um, it's, it's a, there is a similar dynamic um, in, in some ways, um, but uh, it, it's not as, uh, it's not as direct in the way that, 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 that Kennedy has been making about being present. I mean, he's used those words out here specifically. Um, and uh, that hasn't been the same tone that Morris has taken. And I think one other thing that Kennedy has talked about is like, you know, new generation, uh, so on and so forth. That's been a little bit less. I mean, I, I know Morris wanted to make that argument early on and it has come up, but it's never been like a consistent theme. I don't know if it was just that they made the decision not to focus on it as much or um, there were just other considerations, uh, but it just hasn't been something in the fore. I don't know how effective it would necessarily be, um, you know, around here. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily know how effective it is for Kennedy out here either. So, I mean, it, it might just be uh, more of, a, as, as Kerry said, talking about where he's getting his money from as opposed to, you know, people on the ground being more like, we want a town hall. Morse has definitely positioned himself in terms of, progressive Democrat. And the last cycle when Tahira Amatul-Wadu challenged Neil, she also was a progressive Democrat. And I think whether or not you look at who are the big progressive Democrats who've done big things in the party, you can point to AOC. And I think that earlier on in the campaign, Morse was definitely trying to say, like, I can be the AOC of Western Massachusetts, maybe not directly, but that was definitely the implication. I think with the representative Elliot Engel losing that seat to Jamal Bowman recently in New York, I have to say that there's got to be some discussion behind the scenes in the Neil camp that, okay, is recent past prologue here? Is this something that could be uh, something big here in Massachusetts as well with Morse? I mean, from what I've heard talking to, to sources, it is it has become 
like a very competitive race, like maybe even within 10 points. The tone of it has changed dramatically in recent weeks to the point that political consultant Tony Signoli told me that he's never seen this level of intensity in this neck of the woods. And we're talking not Kennedy Romney, not ever, he said. And that for Richard Neal, who is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, who has represented Western Massachusetts, whether it's as a mayor or uh, in the second congressional district, or now the first congressional district, that I think will have a lot of people surprised to hear that piece, that this race has become this competitive. The only thing that I would add to that is to a certain extent, there's a lot we don't know. And part of it is because of COVID-19. Like for you know this entire summer right now, if we were living in a normal period, I would be going to events. I'd be going to candidate rallies. I'd be you know talking to, to, to people that I would never even, you know, that I would just see randomly. Um, and you just don't, see, you aren't seeing people the way that you are before. Um, and so it's been very hard to like gauge how much of this is, uh, is really, Real. I mean, I assume that there's probably, you know, polling data out there that, uh, you know, both campaigns have access to that that would provide some information. Um, but just as somebody who, you know, practices what I do through being at places and can't do that, it's been very hard to judge whether or not this is a campaign that's happening almost entirely online, in which case... I think Neil is probably walking, running away with it, or one that actually has uh, something happening on the ground as well. To your point about the ground game, it's been interesting. The Morse campaign's still been knocking on doors. I've seen pictures of it. I've seen people tweeting about it. Uh, obviously, socially distanced, wearing masks. But in the COVID moment, you would think like, ah, the the door knock game is done. And for whatever reason, he, the Morse team has decided to continue with that sort of old school approach a bit as well, uh, even though, even while they've had a very new school approach online, whether that's uh, online ads, targets on Facebook, use on Twitter, videos, um, they're definitely mixing up the old and the new. And I also heard uh, that mailers from the Morse campaign have really spiked in recent weeks and very specific mailers. So if you've uh, showed yourself to be a voter in recent elections who cares about Black Lives Matter. There was a targeted mailer from the Morse campaign that spoke to that issue, uh, as well as six or possibly even seven other very specific mailers. This is great stuff. And I feel like I now know 200% more about the race than I did before we started talking. I have a couple more questions for the two of you. Are people who you have talked to who are down on Neil frustrated in part by the way the Democratic House has, as some people would argue, failed to exercise really aggressive oversight vis-a-vis the Trump administration? I mean, and I know I, I ask that in part because I have seen, and I couldn't tell you exactly where, but criticism, for example, of when Neil, in his role as chair of Ways, of Ways and Means, chose to request the president's tax returns and how he chose to follow up when that request uh, was not responded to. Is that something that people who are inclined to go with Morse are thinking about and talking about? The people that I personally have encountered, certainly some of the people that I, I know who are you know political activists in the district who are with Morse, um, I don't know so much because, I mean, a lot of these people were with Tahira Amatul Wadud two years ago, too. So I, I think, you know, the, a lot of it is 
I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't mean to, 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 to diminish or mock anybody here, but it, a lot of it's just a very different impression of what they want in their congressman. I'll give you a perfect example. If you ever go to Congressman Jim McGovern's office in Washington, D.C., he has a photo on the wall of him getting arrested outside the Sudanese embassy. Um, and that's just who he is. You know, I mean, he and uh, Neil's voting records are not that different. They vote the same way, like 97, 98% of the time. But he just has a much more, you know, activist persona that I know people in like East Hampton wish they had. They look over the border in Northampton where he represents them and they just pine for something like that. That's just not Neil's style. Neil is a, you know, a classic urban politician. He's a former college professor and high school teacher. People say, well, he lectures. And it's like, well, he's a college professor. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, it's just a completely different style of what some people want or expect out of their, uh, their member of Congress. So much to the point that they almost kind of forget the fact that they're on the same page on the, like, you know, Neil and McGovern on the same page on almost everything. Certainly where leadership is concerned, they're both in leadership and they're both, you know, do, do as, you know, be in the same direction like Nancy Pelosi is. And Adam, your question about the, the tax piece and who's bringing it up, Morse is bringing it up. He hammered him on that recently saying like, too slow, snail's pace, that's not 2020, that's not what progressives would do. I would have been on that day one. He was very critical of that. But when, and I think you may even have been there, Matt, it was a presser that Neil held shortly after being tapped for Ways and Means. And the question came up about whether or not he'd pursue Trump's tax returns. And his answer was essentially, we want to, I think we will. And we're going to make sure that we have everything lined up to make sure that a legal challenge would be solid and sound. We're going to study. We're going to take a look. And there it is. There's that professorial approach. There's that I want to make sure that I have everything I need and then I'll do it. So it's not that he didn't do it. He did. But Morse was very critical of the approach that he took to eventually get there, sort of a day late and a dollar short. And here we are. We still don't have the tax returns. I think that Carrie raises a very interesting point about how Morse has been the one bringing it up. And Morse has done a few other things uh, like this, which is... Uh, primarily, at least in my assessment, an appeal to a national audience, because that's really where, you know, he's going to raise money from. I mean, even if you put aside, Morse would be having fundraisers in various parts of the country if it wasn't for this, uh, I mean, maybe not that far away, but New York, Providence, those kinds of places, you know, he went to college in, in Brown. Uh, uh, but you obviously you can't do that now. So he's even more reliant on small dollar donations. And so this kind of uh, focus on an issue that the, you know, the national online left, if you will, is very concerned about the taxes. So focusing on that is a way to kind of, you know, goose his fundraising. And you do see these little spurts that happen when, you know, like the Supreme Court came down and said, no, no taxes right now. That turned into a thing that, you know, was a, an, a push to, to have uh, fundraising, you know, or when Jabal Bowman won in New York, same kind of thing. It's it's about trying to, to gin up that, that energy because there just isn't enough money or uh, donation activity in Western Mass in the congressional district to support a congressional campaign on its own. Two things to follow up on there, I think. So Neil's style isn't attack oriented. And uh, one source I was talking with this week said that that's been a problem for the campaign recently because Morse has been out there saying, here are the things that Neil is falling short on. He's taking big money from pharma, from insurance, 
Um, he's not delivering on these issues for you. Here's the way that I would do that. And he's going at Neil in this way, where if you listen to Neil's ads, he talks about his record, but he's not attacking Morse in any way, shape or form. The money piece, so Morse isn't taking PAC money. He's taking money from individuals. Obviously that's been a liability for Neil, not only in this race, but in previous races, opponents have attacked him on taking that kind of money. But if you zoom out the political action committees that are working, who are anti-Neil or pro-Morse and the campaigns you know, aren't connected to these legally, uh, the estimate that one source told me in the millions the amount of money that is coming in from outside PACs running these ads, either uh, anti-Neil and pro-Morse. We haven't seen until very recently anti-Morse ads. I haven't heard them yet, but I know that, that from a source that they're starting to trickle out because the Neil campaign has said this is liability and we need to course correct very quickly here because voting is happening almost now <laughs> with mail-in voting. Like, September 1 is no longer the target. And even beyond that, some of the 65 plus voters who have historically gone for Neil have said to the campaign, oh yeah, we're gonna be there for you. We'll be there for you in November. Well, that's not gonna help them because this race is most likely going to be decided in September. And and, uh, just, and to, just to jump in real quick, uh, I have heard uh, the, the, the ad that, that, that they're talking about, and it's pretty brutal. It goes right for the jugular on Morris uh, being the mayor of an urban police with an urban police department. So, you know, I, that that could hurt him in some of the areas that he needs to do well in in order to have a prayer in this election. And there are certainly things that the Neil Camp could have attacked about Holyoke, right? Uh, it's got double the state rates of a number of things and not in good ways. Ways. Poverty, uh, un pre-COVID unemployment was twice the state average. I mean, not sparkling numbers here for someone, for Alex Morris, who's been there as mayor for almost a decade. Neil, could, Neil Camp had, could easily have hit on those issues. Recently, they kind of bit back about receivership in the schools there. Can you peg that to Morse when he was in the Holyoke public school system as a student? when some of those problems were seeded or starting to come to the fore, eh, I don't know. I remember interviewing Neil when I did a piece for Greater Boston a couple years ago uh, about his race with Tahira Amatulwa dude. And he seemed almost physically incapable of acknowledging the very existence of her as a candidate when I asked him about her. And it, it didn't strike me as, it didn't strike me necessarily only as what people might think of as the arrogance of a long established incumbent. It was it was almost like he just couldn't do it. Uh, he he launched into this to your the point that you two made earlier, this sort of professorial discussion of how, in fact, the mechanics of our democracy allow for the challenge of a politician like him. And if and when there is such a point uh, at which they are engaging in a public manner, then he will address some of the criticism. It was really, it See, was weird. Note to subsection B. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I was, I was going to say, you know, I mean, he prides himself, I mean, on having never run a negative ad, you know, I mean, he'll, he'll say that if, certainly if you ask him. And uh, I suspect that part of what you described there is just a way of making sure that you don't get too nasty. I mean, he's cr criticized Morris. He hasn't, you know, held back on that, but he's not like some people practically spit blood when they do that. And even Neil doesn't when he's criticizing Morris. 
All right, I got one more question for the two of you. I tend to think that we are past a point in Massachusetts politics where a candidate's sexual orientation matters at all. But I think of uh, gay and lesbian candidates as not wrestling with an extra challenge, but maybe in a position to mobilize from the support of, in particular, gay and lesbian donors who are excited about the uh, prospect of electing more people who are out to higher office. Um, But I'm wondering, I have no idea how the fact that Alex Morse is gay is playing out in this race. Uh, Is it an issue at all? Or are we, in fact, at the point where it's a non-issue, except for maybe some extra fundraising punch? I would like to think it's a non-issue. I have not heard it brought up very much in the campaign locally. However, two pieces nationally recently, one in Salon, and I can't remember what the other was, mentioned him as a young, gay, progressive, da-da-da-da-da. So maybe that's a way for a national publication to quickly say, like, here's why this race should be interesting to you. But in my experience, I haven't seen it come up much here locally. What about you, Matt? Um, no, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I interviewed Morse just after he was elected in 2011 and asked him point blank as like, well, was this an issue in the campaign? And at the time he said, well, people didn't want to you know, do, do it directly. They would talk about how I didn't have any children. And I found that to be a little bit I didn't really believe it as like as proof that there was a homophobia in the race. Don't get me wrong. There was homophobia in that race, but I don't think it was a decisive factor. The people that were vote that had it as an issue were never going to vote for him anyway. Um, and then years later, he would he would he would refer to the not having children thing as, well, they didn't want to vote for somebody this young. So, I mean, it was. You know, I mean, I think that's true. I think that the issue was, it was they, they, if they, if people were saying that it was about a, an age thing, you know, I don't think it had anything to do with him being gay. I mean, he was 22 years old. I mean, um, not everybody expects people to have a bunch of kids at age anymore. I don't think it's really been a big issue here. Certainly, Neil doesn't want it to be an issue that way. I mean, his son is gay. He's gotten endorsements from, uh, you know, LGBT-affiliated groups. So there's not really any desire to stoke that uh, issue at all around here. And uh, if it is an issue, it's really only happening within the minds of a couple of people and that are keeping it to themselves. All right. Carrie Saldo and Matt Safransky, this was absolutely fascinating and also sobering because it reminds me how much I don't know about politics in Massachusetts. So thank you both for making time to talk this through. Anytime. You're welcome. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to Carrie Saldo and Matt Safransky for bringing the wisdom. And once again, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us if you haven't, and bend our ear. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. We'll talk to you again soon, everybody. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.